Welcome to the Race Forward Pod. I'm your host, Lydia Igwe. Are you an organisation trying to integrate DEI into the fabric of your workplace? Do you know how to break the stereotypical aspects of race and racial differences? Or perhaps you yearn to create sustainable race equality that would be modelled through generations for years to come. In today's conversation, I have Nzinka Orgill, who shares insights on breaking racial stereotyping and achieving sustainable DEI. Nzinka is the founder and CEO of Race Expert Limited. She's an anti-racism strategist and diversity, equality and inclusion consultant. She's a transformational change leader in the innovation, automation and digitization spaces. As an advocate of social justice, Nzinka believes in giving everyone the support, sponsorship and opportunity to move forward and progress. In her words, being able to do what we say and say what we do is where progress can be achieved in moving things forward in the DEI space. Thank you for having me, Lydia. I'm well. Um, I've got a little bit of a croaky voice as I'm recovering from a cold. But aside from that, I'm in really high spirits. So all is good, my side. Oh, well, I feel even more blessed to have you in my presence if you've got a cold. So, yeah, you know, well, I hope you get well soon. And for the next couple of minutes, we're going to be talking about all things race equality, which I'm really excited to. So let's just kick off with, you know, your journey. I'm really, really intrigued about your own personal journey and what has influenced you to commit your professional efforts to advance race equality. Thank you. So great question. So I guess everything in my life, I believe, has been placed there for a reason. I I grew up in Birmingham. I grew up to Jamaican parents. My mother in particular was a massive advocate for black history and being really familiar and comfortable with my heritage, my culture, customs, food, music, all of it, but also the contributions made by black people. So even from a very, very early start in life, I was very much submerged in the black culture. And in Birmingham, where I grew up, it was very diverse. So I was always around different people from different backgrounds. I had friends from from different parts of the world. And I guess most of my childhood was very much an enjoyable childhood. I didn't see... I did see the differences, obviously, culturally, but I didn't experience the differences in terms of how I was treated and the experiences that I had going forward. So um, that was really wonderful. I think for me, I only really started to kind of appreciate certain elements of the fact that I was a, a black woman and how black people or people who are culturally different are treated this kind of really snowballed when I moved from Birmingham to London. So I embarked on a little adventure because I finished my A-levels. I wanted to go to the big, bright city to do my law degree. And I remember turning up in central London thinking, wow, there's so many different people, so many different backgrounds, so many different cultures, really vibrant, really exciting, and looking forward to starting my university journey. And I remember walking into the university And thinking, oh, where's all the colour gone? It felt like walking into a different world. And, you know, I I remember thinking, okay, not not to kind of prejudge the situation. Let's just go with the flow and enjoy it. And just finding myself really, if I'm honest, Lydia, quite isolated. My name is obviously quite unusual. A lot of people couldn't be bothered to try and pronounce it. They thought it was silly. They didn't think it was a real name. And I found myself quite lonely through my university experience. And I thought, well, you know what? I've got a good network around me. I've got great friends. I've got great, great family. I know my heritage because my mum made sure of that. 
So I was good in myself, but I thought this isn't a particularly nice or enjoyable experience. But I got through university, I had a great time. And then I um, moved into the corporate world. And I think this is where, for me, the shift happened in terms of not just being aware of the differences, but actually wanting to proactively get involved in being part of the solution. So um, I started off in a, a large organization within the aviation sector. I joined at Frontline. And obviously, in a lot of organizations, you'll find there's a lot of diversity Frontline. You've got a lot of different people from different cultural backgrounds. And I felt very much comfortable. I felt like I was back in Birmingham, lots of different people, familiar with them. They were familiar with me. And the moment I decided to, to, to pursue a career in terms of progressing within the organization, I started to really appreciate the fact that ah, there are limitations to how this feeling and experience, you know, rolls out and, 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 and plays out. And as I moved up to more senior roles, I found myself in situations where I thought, well, why should I have to be in here? I'm an educated woman. I know my stuff. I'm a good person. I have integrity. I'm, you know, I'm transparent. I care about people. Why am I being subjected to certain things that I would never expect to have to deal with? And, you know, for me, I think that was probably the starting point. And then just in terms of talking to other people. So as you probably can tell, Lydia, I like to talk. I will talk to anyone who's got ears. <laughs> I will talk to anyone who looks like they're interested in what I have to say. And just talking to other people, sharing my challenge in terms of progressing and then hearing that that challenge was something that other people were also experiencing. I thought, well, if there's quite a few of us going through this, why on earth isn't anything being done about this? And you know what? Where there is no one in this space doing anything, maybe this is the space that I need to occupy. So I'm going to talk about some of the experiences, Lydia. I talk about things like comments about my hair. So, you know, I used to have very straight hair, very corporate look, you know, and then one day I, I took the, you know, the decision to come in with, with box braids and oh my goodness, everybody felt they had to have the right to have an opinion about my hair. Oh, my oh it's very ethnic. Oh, it's very tribal, isn't it, Enzinga? I'm thinking, well, what on earth do you mean? <laughs> oh, it's very exotic. And I'm thinking, well, not for me in my background, my family looked like this. The people I'm around looked like this. And I realized, aside from the fact that there were things that needed to be, you know, resolved in terms of how people were treated, there was a massive piece around educating people. You know, it's one thing to have an opinion. Does that opinion need to be something that's communicated in a public forum that's going to impact on how someone feels and therefore how they show up in their, in their work environment? It's something I would definitely question. And for me, you know, it's just, it started from there. I've had comments about my skin colour. I've had jokes made about black people and eating chocolate. I've had conversations about my capability. So I've been offered positions, Lydia, and been told, well, although you got the job and you completely excelled at the interview, we're not quite sure if you're ready yet. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, is this not a contradiction in itself? You're offering me a role and then you're kind of countering that with I'm not ready. And therefore, that's a justification for why I'm not going to be paid in the same way that anybody else would be. And for me, it's almost always felt like an uphill battle to try and not even get the best, but get what I deserve. And I thought, and if I'm going through this, other people are definitely going through this. So some of the work I've done as well, um, Lydia, I kind of got involved in staff networking at, at work around culture and race, because as much as I will 
also say I'm a massive advocate for all aspects of EDI. Race and culture to me is the first thing that introduces itself to any room that I walk in. And it's a thing that I feel has hindered me in terms of my progression at times. And getting involved in that and getting involved in the dynamics around what kind of strategies and systems and mechanisms are in place in terms of how we progress people, how we attract people, how we ensure people have a safe environment to be able to come and be their true, authentic selves. You know, how we ensure we've got the right type of inclusive leadership has been things that I've been able to get involved in. And just over the past probably two years with what's happened in the pandemic, with what's happened in the media, that just for the record, we've been able to see because it was captured, but it's actually always been happening just without the camera or social media in place. It's just let me really think about the fact that I need to do more and I want to do more. And that was probably the birth of Race Expert Limited. And I think with all the experience I've had as well, Lydia, because I've, I've done so many different things, I'm someone who likes to do things that I enjoy and likes to be around people. So I've worked in training and development. I've worked in people management. I've worked in data and analytics. I've worked in innovation and automation, project management. I've been able to tie all of that together and to create a solution for organizations going forward. For me, I'm all about action. And I think that's why I'm committed to racial equality. There is so much conversation happening in this space. Let's talk about it. Let's rehash trauma. Let's pat ourselves on the back because they're doing something about it. When actually what we should be doing is taking the necessary steps, creating the intentions and taking the action to deliver change that is sustainable and embedded. So that's kind of where I wanted to get in and what I wanted to be part of. And also just ensuring that young people like myself or even across any you know, equality diversity strand can come into an organization and feel like they belong and not feel like they have to justify themselves or seek validation or almost compromise who they are as individuals to fit into an organizational culture that doesn't want them or doesn't support them. Wow. Can I just say your passion just exudes. I mean, I can literally feel it through the <laughs> computer screen so and that's really nice of you to talk me through the whole journey from you know university corporate life and today really and I think it's really inspiring and thank god that you've decided to do something about something that you feel that you've been called to do so that's a really good blessing and you know and I and hats off to you and so one of the other questions I had was around you know a lot of people know now actually that there's a spike in um race equality work and race and culture experts but sometimes they just don't understand what that actually means in practical terms so what does a typical day look like for you as a race and culture expert oh so I think the first thing to say Lydia is no day is ever the same but for me I think because of the nature of the work that I do because obviously it's a very difficult subject for many people to talk about there is trauma associated to it I don't just work in it I also live it and experience it myself as a black woman the first thing I would talk about in terms of a typical day is having the right structure in place I'm really committed to a structure because the structure doesn't just support me and enable me to do what I do it helps me to build resilience and to make sure that I can end my day and then start my next day geared up and raring to go so a typical day for me is starting off with meditation. I journal a lot. 
Um, I like to write, but I also like to speak into a journal. I talk to God, to people talk to different people. But I think when there are things that come up for me, rather than having them sit with me and come out in terms of the interactions I have with people, I like to kind of almost purge and clear clear everything and, and have, you know, almost like a, a, a blank canvas to start from. So I'll do journaling. I'll do meditation. I'll try and do a bit of exercise, if I'm honest. That <laughs> slipped a little bit. I think the most amount of exercise I'm getting at the moment, Lydia, is walking to the fridge and back. So that's, that's not good. <laughs> so there's always room for improvement. But then I'll plan my day. And my day will consist of client calls. So I do a lot of client calls. I do discovery calls with my clients, also follow-up calls with my clients. For the people that I'm working with, you know, picking through the work that we have to do in terms of moving the agenda forward, whether it's talking about strategies or action plans, whether it's talking about initiatives, whether it's discussing stuff that's topical or that's come up and how we plan to, you know, incorporate that into the work that we're doing. I do a bit of researching and reading as well. You know, I'm a race and culture expert, but no one is ever 100% an expert. You have to work on your craft, right? So I spend time and invest time in reading, podcasts, videos, anything that you know works in terms of helping me to grow and develop myself and also things that will change my perspective. I think it's really important to have a diversity of input as well. So I'm able to reflect that in terms of how I deal with my clients. You know, some days I might be facilitating workshops or training sessions or preparing for a public speaking event. So all in all, my days can be very different. But a lot of the time I will spend probably working and talking to people as well as a little bit of time working independently to actually get the work done. I'll also at some point in my day inject a bit of love. Like for me, I need to be around the people that I care about. My friends and my family have to be at some point, a feature of my day because they almost top me up because, like I said, in this space, it can be quite, you know, traumatic to some degree, depending on what you're dealing with and what you're unpicking and also the organisations that you're working with. So for me, I know I can reach out to my family and they can just almost bring me back to, to, to default setting. This is who you are. This is what you're about. Pick yourself up and go out there and be fabulous. So, you know, that's the kind of day that I have Food features a lot in my days, Lydia. Food I love, all types of food. I've recently transitioned from being a meat eater to a pescatarian. So that's been quite exciting in terms of dishes and trying new things. And then I'll end my day probably very much similarly to how I start it. So with meditation, with journaling, and then, yeah, just with kind of ensuring that I've achieved what I've wanted for the day. I think sometimes when you're in the doing, you forget to acknowledge all the great things that you've done. So at the end of my day, I kind of like to reflect and say, Enzinga, you wanted to do this, 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 and this. And have you done all of those things? Maybe not, but you have done this, this, and this. So that's the kind of typical day for me in terms of what I get up to. Awesome. That sounds like an eclectic mix of loveliness and, you know, things that are productive as well. So that's awesome. Now, we've talked a little bit about this. And I just wanted to pick a little bit more into the subject of racial inequality as a black woman professionally. So have you faced racial inequality as a black woman? And if so, how have you overcome it? Yeah, I think the, the sad reality is that I absolutely have. And it sounds bizarre to say, but as I get more into the space that I'm in, I can kind of retrospectively look back and see that it's happened so much more 
but I probably haven't been as tuned in and as aware of it as I have I am now. But um, absolutely, you know, just examples like, you know, the organisation I was working for previously, I was quite senior. So as part of my role, I'd go out and travel. So I travelled to places like Asia to represent my organisation. Now, can you imagine I'm in this massive hotel in a part of Asia with a lanyard on that indicates I'm at the conference, carrying a goodie bag from the conference, walking around with a pamphlet for the conference and I'm being asked am I lost do I know where I am what am I here for I've got people following me around I'm thinking to myself are you serious like even if I didn't have all of those things with me that is not the approach you should be taking at no point did I look lost did I look like I didn't know where I was going I didn't know what I was doing but yet people felt that I needed to be asked and almost questioned and then why are you here for or who do you which company do you represent and I thought to myself, as I looked around, I thought, I'm the only person this is happening to. Mm. Why am I the only person this is happening to? And then obviously you connect the dots and you think, you know, as a black woman, this is an even more of a reminder of the fact that there are some spaces that people think I don't belong in. So what I need to do is make sure that it's very clear to everybody that I absolutely do belong here. So I'm more than happy to say, do you know what? I represent this company. I'm here. In fact, I'm one of the headlines on your agenda today. So I'm meant to be here. Um, Can I ask why you felt it was necessary to question me? And to then almost impart a bit of education. It's not every person that you feel that doesn't fit in to the setting that you're in, that you should be questioning. Think about how you make that person feel, especially if you're wanting to create more of an inclusive and belonging conference. And then, you know, to be honest, there's only so many limitations you can do with the people that have kind of approached you, but it's about escalating it with that conference provider and saying there's some probably areas you might need to work on in terms of ensuring all of your attendees and everybody who's part of the conference is made to feel included and that they belong. But for me, that's just one instance. You know, I've had other instances where I've been part of meetings. So my name is unusual. People don't know sometimes if I'm male or female, if my Surname is my first name. So I get called all kinds of things all the time and take no issue in correcting people because I'm happy to make sure they get it right going forward. But, you know, I'll be in a meeting. I'll turn up. Oh, yes, love. Coffee for me. Oh, my goodness. Coffee for who? Sorry, I'm, I'm chairing the meeting. I'm the lead senior PM. There will be no coffee for anybody unless we all get up and get it for ourselves. And it's about tackling that and, and broaching that and, you know, being in those forums and having people shout over you and you having to say, I'm sorry, can you please stop? I haven't finished speaking. Can you let me finish what I have to say before you jump in? And going forward, can you let me finish what I'm saying before you decide to start speaking? And, you know, there's been points, Lydia, to be honest, where I've said, I'm going to have to stop this meeting if people aren't able to communicate effectively and responsibly. I will not be having people shout over me. I'll be very clear about not raising my voice because I know you've got that narrative about being the angry, oversensitive black woman, which I won't play into. But then I think to myself, it's almost like sometimes you're being goaded and being tested. And for me, I always draw back to being calm and composed and saying, right, I'm not going to be that for that person to justify a narrative they want to prove in this setting. But what I will do is respectfully say, I'm not going to tolerate that. And I find it acceptable to have to deal with people who don't understand the basic dynamics of how to have a conversation. 
So that's happened quite a few times. And for me, it's just being able to stand in my truth in that moment, Nadia, and say that these are my boundaries. I can't speak for every single black woman or black person or culturally diverse person or person. I can speak for myself so I can tell people what I am prepared to tolerate and also what I'm not prepared to tolerate and educate them in that that behavior is quite microaggressive. You know, you can't talk over somebody and invalidate what they're saying because you think what you say carries more weight. We don't do that. We listen to everybody. Everybody's input matters and counts. And I, like I said, I take no issue in, in telling people that. And I can see that some people might find it uncomfortable to be told that by a black woman. But you know what? You wouldn't have to be told that if you weren't doing it. Oh, I like that ending very much so. <laughs> now, in terms of the stereotype, of the angry black woman who is too sensitive. I mean, that is something that research definitely is out there showing exists, right? So what can workplaces do to not perpetuate this stereotype? And what's your advice for black women who are victims of this? Good question, Nidia. I think workplaces can acknowledge it, acknowledge that it happens acknowledge that it happens a lot more often than they probably would care to say and acknowledge that it's the wrong thing to do. You know, I think first and foremost, we are all human beings. Everyone at some point gets angry, but there's only some people that will have it held against them in a professional capacity that will be damaging for them professionally. And for me, I think that is not acceptable. You know, you might have male white colleagues who, you know, express anger, but they're, they're, they're tenacious, they're passionate. You know, and I think it can't work for one and then not for other. But at the same time, I think, you know, by calling it out, by being responsible about it, by educating the organisation, by saying this is a narrative that does not apply, that should not apply. Also, you know, rather than calling out people and saying they're angry, it's about understanding, well, is there a reason why people are coming across in a certain way? But for me, in terms of how I've approached it, because I am very professional, Idea. My, my parents were like, well, my mum in particular was like, you know, you need to pull yourself together and handle yourself in a way that is reflective of who you want to be and how you want to be perceived when you are in the work environment. So, so getting angry is not something that I would ever do in a public forum. But in the instances where I have been accused of being angry, I've actually redirected the question and asked the individual to say, well, can you stipulate exactly how I've been angry? Can you give me an example of what I've done in terms of my behaviour that could be deemed as angry? And that's the first thing I'll do. And often, more often than that, you'll find people won't have a response for that because they can't articulate it because guess what? It doesn't exist and it wasn't there. But on the rare occasion where they try and pull something to get together and, you know, try and justify what they've said, I'm like, well, okay, is that being angry or is that being assertive? Is that being passionate or tenacious? Can we be clear? Because we bounce terms around like they don't matter to the individual when actually they, they stick, you know? You, you say something like that to a woman in a work environment around people, that's, that's the narrative. And they might spend the rest of their professional careers unpicking that narrative and trying to appease people to come across as not being angry or aggressive or anything else that they're being labelled as. And for me, that's that's the first step that I'll do. And then I'll call it out and say, just to be clear, if you're not able to understand how I'm articulating myself, maybe there's an opportunity for you to do some education in terms of cultural competency. 
I'm not angry. I'm speaking about something I'm passionate about. I'm not being rude. I'm not being disrespectful. And actually, I resent the comment that I'm being called an angry black woman. And I would really encourage you going forward to be very responsible with how you communicate. Because what you can do is completely derail somebody who's very passionate about something because of a very ill-placed comment that you don't really truly appreciate the implications of. So that's how I've dealt with it. But it's always been around trying to get to the bottom of exactly what the accusation is or what the statement is saying and then educating people about this, you know, the impact of the words that they use, whether that's organisationally or individually. Mm, some really sound advice there. And it's a shame that in the 21st century, we need to be talking about issues like this. Yeah. What strategies can organisations put in place in terms of race quality? I mean, this is something that you do day in, day out. Mm-hmm. You know, are there any strategies that you think are absolutely, you know, not uh, compromisable? It's, it's not a negotiation. It just needs to be in place. At least yeah. start advancing race equality. Absolutely. I think the first thing is, you know, race equality, as with DNI or EDI, is part of the, you know, it's a part of the DNA of the organization. To me, sometimes when I go out there and I see what's happening, it feels like a bit like a bolt on. Oh, we're an organization, we do all this great stuff. Oh, and we do equality, diversity, and inclusion. Oh, and we have an anti racist strategy. Oh, and we care about social justice. This should all be embedded in the DNA of the organization and woven through the fabric of the organization. You know, when we think about things like safety, we don't say, oh, this is an organization that does all these things and, you know, safety is important to us. We don't, therefore, struggle for budgets for safety. We don't struggle for resources for safety. We don't struggle to comply for, you know, with legislation for safety. But we do so with, you know, things around race and culture. And for me, it's like, well, we need to kind of approach it in the same vein. So we absolutely need to make sure it's clear in terms of the corporate objectives of the organisation, what we are doing about race and culture. And if we're not going to do anything about it, let's be clear, we should stop talking about it. Because the people within your organisation who have to live the experience, who are resting on the hopes that the organisation will do something about the experiences they encounter, do not deserve to have it thrown around like a, a condiment on a dish of food. It needs to be there. It needs to be stuck. It needs to be integrated and it needs to be sustainable and well embedded. There's other aspects and things that you can do in terms of looking at, you know, what kind of strategies you have in place, you know, in terms of how you recruit, how you identify talent, how you procure. So how you bring in suppliers. Are your suppliers reflective and representative of what you want as an organization who's passionate about social justice and race and culture? If it's not, then a hmm, couple of questions around, you know, ethics and morals. Why are you working with them? You know, for me, it's really important that you get the voices of those that are impacted as well. So many times, Lydia, you know, I've been out there and I've seen organisations doing work in the EDI space around race and culture. And I'm yet to see anyone who is culturally diverse as part of those conversations. It's all being done to people. We're doing this great thing for you. But guess what? We don't want your input. We don't want your contribution. You haven't got a voice at the table. And you should be grateful because we're trying to do something about changing the dial. Well, actually, no, thank you. I didn't ask for this. Let me be part of the solution. And I think it's really important that there is a collaboration that takes place with those that are impacted and those who are the key decision makers or the leaders or the ones who can actually be the change agents in this space. 
And that's an open and honest dialogue. You know, I'll go into some organisations and people will say, oh, goodness, we're having the race conversation again. We've already been here. We've already had this conversation. It feels like we're not getting anywhere. We're not moving forward. And I think, wow, what an interesting position to be in. You're tired of hearing about it. Imagine having to live it as well, you know? And that's why it needs to be something that we continue to chip away at. So it's about saying and being really honest that, yes, we are having the conversation again, but the hope is this time it's followed up by sustainable action. Because that's another thing. Organisations need to move from the let's have the conversations. Conversations are great, but Lydia, I, I don't know any other um, any other group of people that experience trauma that are expected to talk about it so much. There's so little that comes from it, apart from people feeling accomplished about the fact that we're having the conversation. It almost feels quite cruel. And I think, yes, let's have the conversation because in having the conversation, people open up and they unravel things about their journey and their experience that they probably have never shared before. But then what are we doing with that? Mm. And if the answer is nothing, then we should stop doing it because it's not the right thing to do. And for me, it's about having safe spaces. It's about identifying pain points and having clear targets and, and initiatives as to how we address those pain points and being really honest and transparent about where people are on their journey. You know, for me, and I, I talk about it quite a bit, but the term BAME, I hate. And I'm, I'm quite passionate about my hate for it because I think it diminishes the experiences of individuals within that group of people. I think we do need to almost look at the individual experiences. So as an Asian person, what do you experience? As a black person, what do you experience? You know, and then talk about what that means to the organization and how they can deal with that. Because when you class or classify everyone as BAME or put them into the same melting pot, there are some experiences or encounters that get overlooked. Because let's be clear, the black experience is very different to some degree from the Asian experience. But if we're looking at data that puts everyone together, it tells us a very misleading story. And we need to be really transparent and honest about it and go into the detail. And then just be really clear about having representation, role models that are advocates for race and racial equality. And not just people who are from culturally diverse backgrounds, your middle-class white men and women, you know, people who are from different protected characteristic groups. We need to be advocating for each other because if it's just the same type of people who are talking about a problem that impacts on them, it doesn't become a problem that's owned by everybody. It's owned by a few and it's, you know, kept on the shoulders of that few. And then I've, I guess the final point I'd make, and sorry, there's so many points I can make about this. <laughs> there is utilizing your staff networks but utilizing them in a way where you're not putting all of the expectation and work on them you've got people who are part of an organization that have a day job that are really passionate about moving the agenda forward so support them with that by giving them resources by giving them recognition by giving them opportunities to progress because of the extra stuff that they're doing because it's not good enough to say well we've got so-and-so who leads our BAME network who's looking at the challenges of an organization you're thinking well that person's probably not necessarily a senior manager yes they might have lead influence yes they might have to some degree the ability to galvanize support but are they a key decision maker no probably more often than not they're not so 
we need to make sure that if they're not, they have the support and sponsorship and endorsement from a case decision maker. So the things that they're doing in that space can carry weight and can move things forward. Wow. Some key takeaways for anyone listening. Make sure you listen to this podcast and take action. The two things go hand in hand. (laughs) Absolutely. You have five brand pillars for your business. Okay. And I looked at them and I thought, wow, this is amazing. So you have social justice, disruptive innovation, empowerment, integrity, and authenticity. Can you tell us more about these? Absolutely. So as you probably can tell, Lydia, I'm all about the action, the doing, let's get stuff done. And I thought... Really? I hadn't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it, honestly. But um, for me, I think that's where my brand pillars come in. So, you know, first and foremost, there are things that I'd like to think that my company reflects in terms of the work that it does. You know, we are about social justice. So it's about doing the right thing, you know? It's about doing the right thing. Disruptive innovation, it's about doing it differently, right? You know, we could take a, a process or a an initiative and lift it from one company and slap it into another, but it won't necessarily work. It's about you know doing it differently because it works for your organization and your organizational culture. Empowerment is doing it for yourself, right? You go, we've got lots of resources out there. We've got lots of things that people can be part of in terms of webinars, sessions, podcasts, you know, videos, but there's a responsibility for the individuals to upskill themselves and educate themselves. So empower yourself. If you don't know the answers, go out there and find it. And by that, I don't mean tap any culturally diverse person on the shoulder and ask them the question, because to be honest, not everyone is going to be in a position where they want to talk about things, but really go out there and empower yourself to find out more about race and racism. And, you know, the fact that it's not just about calling people's name, people names, but it's more systemic and it's more, you know, institutionalized and it's woven into the fabric of our society. Integrity is a massive one for me. Do what you say and say what you do, okay? On the back of George Floyd, everybody was putting out statements about how they're going to do this and how they're going to do that, how it really matters to them to make sure that they right the wrongs and, you know, they want to stomp out racism, et cetera, et cetera. And then things got really quiet for a while. And then we had the UEFA 2020 final and the uproar or the outcry from what happened. And I thought to myself, for me, someone in this space, I wasn't surprised by anything that had happened because people are putting out gestures and putting out statements, but there's no action that follows it. They're saying they're an anti-racist organization, but you're saying it, but are you actually doing it in your practices and your policies? Are your frameworks, are your structures set up to enable that? Are you unpicking it? Are you confronting it and highlighting behavior that's inappropriate? Because let me be clear, Talking about Black History Month and how great it is to know about the contributions of Black people is not being anti-racist. It's, it's, being, a, it's being a bystander and it's, it's taking the, the lazy approach. It's about saying, well, actually, let me challenge the way that I think as a leader. Let me challenge the way my team think as a leader. Let me ask the people within my team what they think. Let me call out behaviour that I feel is inappropriate and let me be comfortable with being called out to if there's things I'm doing that aren't right. And then in terms of authenticity, it's about doing it your own way. We are all different. And for goodness sakes, we we should bring that difference and that creativity in everything that we do. 
You know, there's lots of people out there in the space that are doing anti-racism or race equality. But ain't none of them Enzinger. You know, there's only one me. And I think that's the thing. We all do things in a way that is conducive to who we are. And we should be proud of that because, you know, the world needs us to be ourselves. So for me, my brand pillars are so important because one thing you're always going to get from me is someone who's passionate about social justice, someone who is disruptive in a very respectful way, someone who is passionate about innovation, who wants to empower others as well as herself someone who is integral and who, who, who believes in integrity. And then finally, someone who's authentic. You know, I'm never going to pretend to be something that I'm not. It's too much hard work and I've got too much work to do. So <laughs> that can be for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and we're on our final question. Where has the time gone? I mean, we could talk all day about this topic. But, you know, you're clearly a highly regarded lady with many athletes. I looked on your website and I was like, wow, really just astonishing. So, but how are you ensuring that you pass on the baton and support others? This is a very important question. I feel like you talked about the next generation very early mm-hmm. on in this interview. And I'm really, you know, interested to see what sorts of things you're doing to support the next generation. So I think, you know, the kind of things that I do, I'm a massive champion of people. So... At the moment, in the role that I am in, in the work that I do, I have a network that I champion and I endorse. I think it's really important we support each other and we actively advocate for one another. And for me, I'm always about the future because I love things that are futuristic, but I'm also about recognising and acknowledging the past. You know, I didn't just stumble upon race equality, land here and start doing the work that I did. There were a lot of people that supported me and that helped me and that nurtured me to be in the position where I am today. And I owe them so much in terms of thanks because they, without realising it, passed the baton on to me and, you know, enlightened a passion in me that wanted, you know, made sure that I wanted to kind of continue in the space that I'm in. So for me, it's about continuing to do that, to speak to young people, to speak to all people and talk about the importance of race equality, not just for those that are you know, negatively impacted, but for everybody. You know, we all benefit from this, right? And we all need to be part of the solution for it. So for me, it's about endorsing, supporting where I can, championing people, highlighting great work. It might be an idea that I haven't come up with, but I want to talk about it and scream about it because I think it's fantastic. You know, it's about saying to young people, what can you do in the generation that are behind you? What kind of role model can you be? It's about getting people to step into who they're meant to be. And by this, Lydia, I mean that, you know, obviously I'm someone who likes to talk. But strangely or not, I'm quite an introverted person. So I'm very reflective. I'm very to myself. And yes, there are things that I feel that passionate about that I will get up and on stand up and speak about. But it's about saying to everybody, there's room for you all. If you're someone who doesn't necessarily want to be in the forefront, in front of the cameras, all over social media, there's work that can be done behind the scenes. Or if you're someone who is comfortable with all of that stuff, then absolutely step into it and take people along with you. So that's why for me, it's important to pass the baton on. Because for me, there's so much work in this space that needs to be done. We want to create a legacy. We want to keep the dial moving us forward. You know, small steps, big changes. And just by encouraging others to show up and lean into their greatness, you give others permission to do the same. So by me stepping up and putting myself out there, 
hopefully others will see. Wow, and Zinga's really passionate about that. I'm passionate about it too. I want to get involved. I want to put myself out there. Absolutely. And you're doing just that. And I'm sure it's going to make waves in terms of inspiring people and empowering them to put themselves out there as well. Thank you, Lydia. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for your insight and your time today. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Race Forward Pod. I'm your host, Lydia Igwe. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Do visit us on social media at RaceForwardPod or visit our website www.racefordpod.com. See you in the next episode.